As you are all very aware, I became your pastor later in life. One result of that is that I will not be preaching every verse of the Bible to you in the years ahead, and so I must be selective in my teaching. And so I want to preach through the Beatitudes because they are of fundamental importance to our Christian life together. So this morning, we will begin a short series on this beginning portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Let me begin by reading um, in chapter 4 of Matthew, verse 23, and I'll be reading through verse 12. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the ten cities, the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteous, righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. First, let's consider the general context of Matthew. I'll be giving you simply an introduction today to these Beatitudes. We will not look at any of them in depth. We, Lord willing, will do that beginning next week. Let's look at the general context of Matthew. Now, the purpose of the Gospel of Matthew is to display Jesus as the promised Old Testament Messiah. He is the expected king who fulfilled prophecy and type to bring in the kingdom of heaven. Over and over again, the phrase that it might be fulfilled is used in this gospel to show that Jesus is the goal of Old Testament history and revelation. And as the Messiah king, he brings salvation to his people. Both Jews and Gentiles find their life 
and peace in him. And so he forms and rules his church as he continues present with them. That's the Gospel of Matthew in a short paragraph. The book itself is structured by five narratives or stories followed by five times of extended teaching. Now, the first of these five discourses is found in chapters 5 through 7 and is usually called the Sermon on the Mount. Before Jesus' teaching is presented, though, in the first four chapters, he is shown to be the Son of God and the human descendant of David. He is presented, in other words, as the shepherd king of Israel who will bring in the reign of God. He is the ruler, as Isaiah is quoted, who will save his people from their sins. Then in chapter 4, Jesus calls his first disciples and he teaches them. And the content of his teaching is an exposition of what the coming of the kingdom of heaven means. So our second question or topic this morning, after looking at this general context of Matthew, is what is the kingdom of heaven? What does that phrase mean? It's found in verse 3 and verse 10, and some other places we'll see here quickly. The short answer is it is the saving rule of God. The kingdom of heaven is the saving rule of God. It's the kingdom or the reign of God's Messiah over his people as their Savior and Lord. Now we recognize that the triune God reigns over all creation absolutely. Why? Well, because he is the creator and the sustainer of it. That's normally called the universal rule or his natural or providential kingdom. But into this fallen world, God sent his son, the messianic king, to bring a spiritual, saving, and gracious kingdom. This is called the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. They are the same thing. Now, I grew up in a system of thought that said that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven were two different things. A very easy study for you would simply be to go to your Gospels and compare the places where the phrases are used. And I think you'll very quickly see that they are indeed the same thing. They're simply two names for the same reality. One of the ways to know this is that our very first beatitude, blessed are the poor, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is kingdom of heaven here. But if you look at the parallel passage in Luke, it says kingdom of God. They are the same thing. And so I'll be using those phrases interchangeably. You will hear as we read different verses, one or the other, they are the same. Now, some of you may recognize that it was John the Baptist's calling to preach the soon appearing of the, what, kingdom of heaven. We see this in Matthew 3, verses 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. What was the content of his preaching? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He proclaimed this message 
because he was to prepare the way of the Lord. Verse 3. You see, the king of the kingdom was about to appear. What happened next? Well, that king, Jesus, presented himself to John for baptism. He then went on to triumph over the devil in the wilderness temptation. And then it says he began to preach. Well, what was Jesus's message according to Matthew? It was exactly the same message as John's. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near or at hand. This we see in chapter 4 and verse 17. In other words, Jesus called on men to turn. Turn away from their present way of thinking about themselves and their sin and God and turn to a new way of thinking about their sin, themselves, and God. Jesus announced that he was the Savior King and he had come to set up his rule. And so he began to populate the kingdom with citizens. He called the twelve to himself and went throughout Galilee teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming what? The gospel of the kingdom. We read that in chapter 4 verse 23. The good news, the evangel of the kingdom. The preaching of the kingdom is good news. It is gospel. Christ's teaching about the kingdom of heaven is found in all four of the Gospels. Now, one important question that must be asked is, how does one become part of this king's rule? How does one enter the kingdom of God? Now, John and Jesus have already answered this question from the human side. Their responsibility is what? It's to repent. It's to have a change of mind about these things. But how could a person obtain the repentance and the faith needed to do this? Well, Jesus answered that from the divine side in John chapter 3 when he said to Nicodemus, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. You cannot repent and believe unless you are born again. You cannot enter, he said, the saving, gracious rule of God. You cannot find peace with God unless the Spirit gives you rebirth. You must be born from above, made new in the inner man. Then, after being born again, repentance and faith will be yours. So entering the kingdom of heaven, make no mistake about this, entering the kingdom of heaven is all about grace. It's all about sovereign grace. It's all about regenerating free grace. It isn't about you keeping the law or pleasing God enough or trying hard enough or hoping or being lucky or being married to the right person or uh, your parents are Christians or the list could go on and on. No, you must be born 
Again, that's how you enter the kingdom of heaven. Because everyone who is born from above. Here's the message of Christ. And turns away from themselves and to him in belief. And, And so they become a citizen under the hand of the king in the kingdom of God. John teaches us that this comes not of blood, not even the will of the flesh. You can't decide of yourself. You don't have the power by yourself to enter the kingdom of God. Nor is it by the will of any other man, but of God. It's the will of God. We are changed in order to believe. Regeneration enables faith. Faith doesn't enable regeneration. Dead people don't savingly believe in Christ. Morally dead people can't do that. It's not that they just don't. That's true. They don't because they can't. They must be born again. I'll take that as an amen. Salvation is all of grace. So we can begin to understand that those who possess the kingdom of heaven are what? They're blessed. They're blessed. They aren't rewarded for their fine efforts of themselves. They are graced. They're gifted. They're blessed by God. Salvation is to his glory alone. And it's also very important to remember that Jesus is the king of the kingdom. You and I are not. The kingdom has come. Why? Because he came into human history. Because he is present. And wherever Christ is present, there is the kingdom of God. He's present now with us. And the kingdom of God is among us, as the scriptures say. In other words, we experience the gracious forgiving, gentle rule of our Jesus as he reigns over us. And so John in Revelation declares that God has made us a kingdom. As the church, we're the outward manifestation of the saving rule of God, the kingdom of heaven. Now Jesus inaugurated this kingdom with his first coming. He secured it by his life and death. And then he was crowned in his resurrection, ascension, and enthroned session. He is the king, currently putting all things under his feet. And when he is done, he will come a second time, and his spiritual kingdom will rule over all. But until then, his saved subjects They live in the world. They live in a different kingdom. In fact, they live in two kingdoms. Christ's kingdom is already here, having invaded the kingdoms of the world. But the saving rule of God is not yet fully here. Now, be assured, consummation is coming, and it is absolutely certain. But until then... The citizens of the kingdom of heaven fight against 
the three enemies of God's kingdom, namely the devil, the world, and the flesh. And so we must expect Christ's teaching about the kingdom in these Beatitudes and in the other places to address this conflict. And he does this in chapters 5 to 7 in what is called the Sermon on the Mount. So this leads us to our next point or question. What is the Sermon on the Mount? Well, it's the teaching, it's the name given to Jesus' teaching to his disciples and secondarily to the crowds in these three chapters of Matthew. Chapter 5, 6, and 7, and then in the parallel passage over in Luke 6. This name, Sermon on the Mount, isn't found in Scripture precisely, but it is an accurate description of it. It was apparently first coined by Augustine. 1,700 years ago. This sermon is the largest single unit of Christ's recorded teaching found anywhere in Scripture. And over the centuries, it is reputed to be the most preached and commented on portion of the Bible. It's likely that Matthew's presentation of Jesus on a mountain with five lessons... Remember those five teaching portions? Is meant to remind the readers of Moses on Sinai and his five books. And one of the truths that we learn from Matthew is that Jesus is the infallible interpreter of the law of God and the one who brings the foretold grace to reality in the life of God's people. Moses' covenant truly foreshadowed salvation, but Jesus' covenant secured salvation. The Sermon on the Mount centers on the lifestyle of those in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, it teaches the ethics of those who are ruled by King Jesus. This is what a Christian looks like, put in simple language. Or maybe put in the terms that John the Baptist and Jesus would hope us to use. This message presents what a life of repentance looks like. And all of that means that this Sermon on the Mount is clearly meant to be lived out now. The Sermon on the Mount is not a message Jesus spoke to tell a people who were to be born thousands of years later, how to live in some millennial golden age. These are not instructions for heaven or the new heavens and new earth. This cannot be because the teaching is full of the presumption of sin, persecution, corruption, and troubles. No, these are instructions on how to live in the already present, but not fully here, kingdom of heaven. This is morality meant to be lived out by us in a fallen world. The Beatitudes are intended for the disciples and through them to us, the church, in every age. They are meant to be believed and practiced now. And so we can take them to ourselves 
to live according to them by God's help. Now this leads us to the fourth and final point or question. How should we understand the Beatitudes? Well, first, what I mean by the term Beatitude is the first section of the Sermon on the Mount that contains the blessings of the kingdom. These are pronounced in chapter 5, verses 2 to 11. They're foundational to the rest of the teaching in this sermon and the rest of his ministry. There are eight or nine blessings, depending on how you count. Now, they're called Beatitudes because the Latin word for blessing is beatus, which means blessed or happy. But more specifically, to be blessed in these verses is to be in a known state of covenant well-being with God. To be blessed in these verses and in most places in Scripture, including Psalm 1, Psalm 32, and other places, to be blessed is to be in a known state of covenant well-being with God. In other words, to be blessed is to be spiritually right with God. More specifically, it's through the grace of the covenant that men experience this right relationship to God. They know it. They're aware of it. This is not something that happens to them passively and they get surprised to hear they're a Christian. No, no, they know it. They're fully involved. They're active in it. They've exercised faith. But because they know it, relief, yes, happiness floods their souls. So those who are blessed, if you want a very short definition, are those who are, are approved of God and happy. That's a good way to just read blessed. Approved by God and therefore happy. Some of the old writers called this divine happiness. Well, why divine happiness? Because God himself in the New Testament is described as blessed or blessed forever. And so for men to be blessed, this is to share the life of God. This is to partake in his character. This is to be right with him and to reap the benefits of being right with him. It is approved by God and therefore happy. This is not a mere emotion, this blessedness. It is a settled conviction that our enmity, our hatred, our war with God is removed and peace has come through the reign of Jesus in our hearts. And so we do indeed know joy and peace. Grace has gifted salvation. And so we rejoice with joy unspeakable. To be blessed is to have received the sovereign, regenerating grace of God. Our old evil king, that, that wicked taskmaster, the man who bound us and imprisoned us in his house, he is overthrown. A new king reigns. A new righteous and gentle king has come. And he rules over us, not merely for his good, although that's true, for our good. <laughs> we have entered the rule of God. 
so we relish our happy destiny in Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus proclaimed in 423, the gospel or good news of the kingdom? This is the good news, that the blessing of being right with God and at peace with him has come. We can experience it. But just as Jesus' new covenant has blessings for penitent believers, so there are curses for those who stubbornly refuse to bow to his lordship. There are many blessings here in these verses. But later in Matthew 23, King Jesus pronounces seven woes, seven curses on those who do not repent, those who do not enter the kingdom of heaven. So it is true that the poor in spirit are blessed, but it is also true that everyone who is convinced of their own self-sufficiency in religion are cursed. There is no blessing for them. They are not approved by God, and therefore they do not have true divine happiness. We understand, we understand that the blessings are for us. They're a part of Jesus' teaching to his disciples, to his congregation, to the citizens in his kingdom. They're not intended to be achievable by those who are not regenerate, who have not repented, who have not believed, who are not ruled by King Jesus. So yes, there are things that for the world, all these things are utterly impossible to be or do. But to those who have the grace and truth that comes from the Messiah King, they are equipped with these graces, with these blessings, to follow his rule. They do this really and sincerely, although yet imperfectly. Remember, the kingdom has come, but it hasn't come in fullness. Well, we experience that every day. So the king's people truly follow him though with many failures and many weaknesses. Sometimes people read these blessings, verses 3 to 12, as commands. That is a harmful mistake that I would urge you to run away from quickly. If you want to get discouraged and give up in the Christian life, take these as commands not graces or blessings. Notice that each of these beatitudes are truth statements, not commands. We could put it this way a bit technically. They are indicatives, not imperatives. In other words, they state, they indicate something about us that's true they aren't in the form of a demand from God. They are statements of what Christians are, not what they must do to become Christians. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, all of these blessings describe all real Christians. There aren't eight different kinds of believers all those who have received the gospel possess all of these. Now, some more than others, and some in smaller or greater 
degrees, yes. But these are descriptions of men and women who have been born again and entered the kingdom of Christ. The graces of the new covenant have come. They reside in them. And they are indeed graced, gifted, blessed. Now, of course, they and we must live out this new life that's placed within them. In that sense, this reminder of who we are does call us to strive to live it out. But any call to holiness found in these verses is rooted in God's prior sovereign grace. He's the one who's made us alive in Christ and formed our new character like this. We're new in the inner man, so we do possess the kingdom of heaven. And it's from this position of strength that we are called to obey our king. We've not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So living according to these blessings, Christian, is doable. The Beatitudes should not lead you to despair, but to praise, to rest, to thanksgiving, to confidence. Well, that's my introduction. And I now have four uses that I'd like to give you. First, know that the Beatitudes are for believers now. They are for believers now. We are intended, another way to say this is we're intended to be followers of Christ. You know, disciples, Christians. We're not fundamentally uh, Paulists or Petronists or Apolloists or we're fundamentally followers of Christ. And if you think these verses aren't for you and Jesus' teaching isn't for you, why do you call yourself a follower of Christ? Why do you obey him? Why don't you obey his apostles? Now that's a false dichotomy that I'm setting up there. But I want to convince you that you need to be alert and ready to hear this as for you in the weeks ahead. How can you call yourself a Christian if you do not follow the teaching of Christ? Yes. Secondly, our second use, receive them as gifts, not debts. Receive these blessings for what they are. Blessings, gifts. They're not debts. As we study these verses, see yourself as the recipients of grace Enabled to please your new king. Don't attempt to do these things in your own strength. Or worse yet, in order to win salvation. That's fundamentally backwards. But from God's grace working in you, work out your salvation. Count yourself approved by God and happy because of the salvation. Well, thirdly, a third use. Be reminded that our joys are joined with miseries in this world. We who are in the kingdom of heaven also live in the midst of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of this present evil age. 
And so our spiritual life, even this good, blessed life, is one of conflict in the outer man and the inner man. So don't be caught by surprise. Don't be taken unaware. Be alert and pray to be prepared to face living in two kingdoms. And fourth and finally, know that if you aren't blessed, you are cursed. Those are the options. Those are the covenantal options. You're either blessed or you're cursed. As Paul said, not every man has faith. In other words, not every man has these blessings. But they are open to all who renounce themselves, repent of their sins, and call upon Jesus as Savior and King. So I say to any of you who are here, who are outside of Christ, outside of the kingdom of grace, repent. For the kingdom of God is here. Let's pray.